could satisfy us like you do Gathered in this great assembly We will cry out you are worthy Can you feel our hearts explode with praise? Oh, join with those who've gone before us Cover you in endless worship You'll be forever crowned with praise. Gathered in this great assembly, we'll cry out, You are worthy. Can you feel our hearts explode with praise? Oh, join with those who've gone before us. Come here with endless worship. for joining us tonight. Um, why don't you guys, if you're at home, you can still stand up and worship. Um, it's good to be able to worship. The great thing about worshiping is you can do it wherever you are, in the car, at home, brushing your teeth. It's good to praise the Lord, right? Our Father everlasting, the all-creating God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy in our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you oh descended into darkness you rose in glorious life forever seated high I believe in
There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free. And my shame is undone. Your presence, Lord. In Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the nothing worth more that could ever come close nothing can compare you're our living hope your presence Lord I've tasted
Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We thank you for all the wonderful things that you've done for us. We thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Thank you, Father that you never leave us nor forsake us. We are quickened by the Holy Ghost who dwells within us. And you lead us into the restoration from all that the enemy has meant to be for evil in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word that's a sure foundation for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm going to start tonight in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus, after preached, preaching what everybody in theological circles accepts is the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest of Jesus' teachings, said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended... And the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, there's a, a saying that people are a lot like tea bags. You can't tell what's on the inside of them until they get in hot water. Well, we've all been put in hot water concerning the recent events, things that have taken place. And I've got to tell you, I've got, I'm going to brag on you here for a minute. From the reports that I've heard about the way things are being handled by the people in our church, how they're using opportunities and finding opportunities to help other people and be a blessing to them, 
I couldn't be prouder to hear the things that I've heard. I am so glad to see the evidence and to hear the reports that identify the evidence, the truth, the reality that you guys have built your house upon the rock, the rock being the word of God. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about David and Saul. And it's really going to be an introduction to some things that I'm going to uh, teach on this Sunday morning. So why don't you turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'll bring you up to date on what has happened in the previous chapters. Israel comes to the place where they call for a king. Samuel was the one, he was the prophet in the land, and he was the one that was delivering the message of God, the word of God to the people. And everything was working the way it was supposed to. But the people said that they wanted a king. Samuel tried to talk them out of it. He said, you don't want a king. If you have a king, then he'll, he'll tax your income. He'll take your children as servants. You don't want a king. But they said, the people of Israel said, well, everybody else has got a king. We want a king too. So Saul was selected to be king over all of Israel, and he looked the part. The Bible says he was a head taller than everybody else. He had striking good looks. He was something that everybody from the outward appearance could have and should have been proud of to be the king. And the Bible says that before Samuel anointed him to be king, that he was humble. He wasn't trying to push himself forward. But boy, once he got to be king, things changed. There were victories, military victories that he won, that the people that endeared him to the people and made the people of Israel want to follow him even more. But there were things that were going on behind the scenes that the people of Israel didn't know about. There was one instance where Samuel had delivered the word of the Lord to him and then told him that he would re reappear at a certain time and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so Saul did what he was told to do, but there were still enemies. There were still armies that were arrayed against Israel. And so he got nervous when Samuel delayed in his coming. And by the time Samuel got there, Saul had offered the sacrifice, the burnt offerings and so forth on behalf of the people. Well, that wasn't his job. He took it upon himself to act in the place of the prophet who was also acting as the priest of Israel at the time as well. And, he, and Samuel reprimanded him for it. Well, he didn't learn his lesson. There was another battle against the uh, Amalekites, I believe it was, that Samuel directed Saul that after the battle or, or during the battle when he went out against the Amalekites, he was supposed to kill the king and slaughter all the, the, uh, the flocks, the cattle and the sheep and so forth. But when Samuel got, came back to the place after the victory had been won, he heard the sheep bleeding. He questioned, Sam, uh, questioned Saul about it. And Saul said, well, we just saved the best for sacrifice. And Samuel asked him about the king. And Saul said they kept the king alive. So this was these two times of disobedience cost Saul the kingdom. 
from that point forward, the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. He's still acting as king. He still has the position of king. But he's acting without the Spirit of the Lord upon him. You remember also that Moses messed up one of God's types. First time they came to the water, came to the rock, he was supposed to strike it, which was a type of Jesus being stricken, smitten of God on the cross. And in the second time he came to the place where they needed water, he was supposed to speak to the rock, which shows and is an illustration of the life that we live where the things that we say come to pass. But Moses was upset with the people and he struck the rock the second time. Well, that simple act of disobedience kept Moses from entering into the promised land. In the same way or in a similar way, we've got Saul who disobeyed Samuel's words, Samuel's instruction to him twice and the kingdom was torn from him. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. This brings us to the place where Samuel is being directed by God toward David, not knowing who he is yet, but being directed toward him. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peacefully? And he said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, that was Jesse's firstborn son, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I want you to realize that, that even Samuel was take, taken in and influenced by the appearance of Jesse's oldest son. Now when Israel told Samuel and they explained to him or, or uh, declared to him that they wanted a king just like the other nations had kings, they got somebody that looked the part. But uh, Saul's disobedience shows that there was character defects within him. These things weren't shown and weren't made, uh, made known until after he was king. And by then it was too late because he's ruling with a rod of iron and particularly after this event takes place when the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. He is just exactly like the king of the world, a king of another nation. But God wanted something different for his people. So Samuel looks on Eliab and says, this has got to be him. And the Lord said, no, we're not going for the outward look. We're going for the rightness of heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these, meaning any of these. 
And Samuel said unto Jesse, are, are here all your children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look at. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Now before we go any further, I've got a question for you. Why didn't God tell Samuel who the one was before he got there? Why did he not know until he looked upon each one of them and the Lord said, it's not him? Even the prophets had to operate by faith. And he did. And as a result, he finally comes to the last one, David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, get that. From that point, from the point he was anointed to be king, it's going to be another 13 years before he takes over the kingdom from Saul. And there were a lot of things, a lot of difficulties and hardships and hard times during those 13 years. But notice that after he's anointed to be king, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul... And an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, we've got trouble with this verse. An evil spirit from the Lord troubled Saul. Are evil spirits from the Lord? Well, if they are, then we ought to pray for more of them to influence us and to work against us. Because if they're from the Lord, then we should want everything, a double measure or a triple measure or a quadruple measure of everything that God has. This evil spirit wasn't from the Lord. It's because the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul that the evil spirit who Saul has been operating by, whose influence Saul has been operating by up to this point that cost him the kingdom, has already been in operation. And Saul's servants said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well." And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with thy sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread, and a bottle of wine and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul said, sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Notice that Jesse, I'm sorry, notice that David was skillful enough to lift the depression or the depressing atmosphere off of Saul that came upon him not because God brought it on him, but because of his own disobedience, he lost the anointing to be king. Now we know that David is identified in the scripture as a man after God's own heart. What makes David a man after God's own heart? Well, verse 18 Look at verse 18 again with me. 
it gives us a description of what David was known to be. Now, this isn't his family that's telling this. This isn't a description by somebody that's close to it. This is one of Saul's servants. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And then he knows all these things about him. Notice the first thing it says is he was cunning and playing. We're going to see several characteristics that make up an excellent spirit. The first thing it says he was cunning and playing. Now, folks, shepherding was not a, a popular job. Shepherding was one of the dirtiest, most uncomfortable things that, that somebody could do. It was usually left to the youngest of the sons, which it was in this case. So for the years preceding this, we could expect that some of his other brothers had been shepherds until David finally takes the, the mantle upon himself as the youngest one. But what did he do? There's a lot, the shepherds have a lot of time on their hands when they're not moving the flock from place to place and they're letting the flock feed. What's he doing? Well, most shepherds would have been wasting time, maybe catching a nap or something like that. But it says that David developed himself. He was cunning in playing. You know, Jewish history tells us, uh, Jewish tradition, I should say, tells us, that David was the author of more than a thousand psalms. He's the main author of, of Israel's, song, uh, Israel's songbook, we know it as the book of Psalms. To the Jews, it's five separate books. And many of them, probably most of them, were written by David. Now, shepherds were uneducated in his day. But David developed himself to such a degree that he wrote these songs and kept records of them. He kept these things that became part of the Jewish, uh, the law and the prophets, the, the word of God, under the Old Testament. He's not letting time go by. He's not wasting time. He's applying himself to something. As I said, Jewish tradition says that he wrote a number of songs and that he invented a number of musical instruments to play these songs on. Things that are still in operation today, I guess. So here where it says he was cunning and playing, how is it that somebody that's not a close associate, not some, uh, somebody that's not with him every day, how is it that they hear of him playing? David must be sitting under a tree, writing these songs, singing these songs, loud enough for everybody to hear them. Now, folks, people from small towns are governed by small town activities. There would be no reason for David or anybody else from the city of Bethlehem to even dream of being a king there's no Carnegie Hall to play at. There's no main stage, no opportunity, no hope for being discovered by David or for David's part. He's singing because it's something that he's doing for himself. And there's another thing about this. We know that David wrote in a lot of the Psalms his love for the Word and the fact that he meditates in the Word day and night. He's always... Uh, has a, a, a positive attitude toward the Word of God. How does he know the Word of God? There's no synagogue for him to go to every Sunday or every Saturday. 
There's no place of teaching where he can come and hear the word. You remember several hundred years later when Hezekiah becomes king. Hezekiah calls for the, the law and the prophet to be read to him. The archives, the documents are in the palace. And so he calls for the, the priest to read these things to him. And you may recall that he found out during that reading about the Passover. They, think about what this means. Hezekiah becomes king and has never heard about a Passover. What else has he not heard of? What else of the word of God has he not heard of? Well, the same thing would be true for David and his family. There's no place to learn the word of God. There's no school to be taught the word of God. There's no priest or local rabbi teaching in the synagogue. I'm sure that there have been things, rare occasions perhaps, where the word of God was identified or preached or spoken of but whatever he's heard is all he's got to meditate on. He doesn't have a Bible like you and I. He doesn't have access to these things that were written, these laws, uh, the law and the prophets. He doesn't have access to the laws of Moses. He's just living a small town, small country life. But he decides to use his time to develop himself. Now, why would he do that? It's pretty unusual most people take the attitude that they'll do just what they need to to get by. But David was motivated by something else. David had an overwhelming sense of excellence, an overwhelming, overwhelming desire for excellence. Just good enough wasn't good enough for him. He's going to make himself into the best person he can possibly be. Now, the Bible says your gift makes place, a place for you, makes room for you, and brings you before great men. That's exactly what happens here with David. David may be the one that wrote that proverb because of his own experience. So when it says he was cunning and playing, that means he decided to, to create excellence in his life by developing himself. Notice the next thing it says, he was a mighty valiant man. How would anybody know that? We know that the, of the story with David and Goliath, how he tells about going out against the lion and the bear, but nobody else knows that. It's certainly not something that's talked around about when he tells Saul. Saul doesn't say, oh yeah, I've heard about that. Was that you? How does anybody know he's a, valiant, a mighty valiant man? This phrase, a mighty valiant man, indicates that he was a man of courage. He was willing to do what was necessary to be done. Folks, think of all the people in the Old Testament that we know of that were given hard, hard things to do. Look at Noah. We don't know how, Noah, how long Noah was in constructing the ark, but it could have been up to 100 years. And every day, somebody passes by. Somebody's close enough to see this thing that's being constructed. It's not like it's small enough to hide behind the bushes. Somebody sees this thing and is a testament as a testimony to what Noah has said that God told him about the rain and the flood that was coming. I'm sure he had discouraging days. I'm sure there were days, probably days that were worse than others, but nobody likes to be mocked or made fun of, but that became a way of life for decades for Noah. Look at Joshua. 
Joshua was given the job, the task of taking the promised land. And God tells him three times before he really becomes or takes action as the leader of the children of Israel, God tells him three times to be strong and of good courage. Now, God's already said, I'll be on your side. He said, as, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Most people have the idea that if God's with us, we don't need to be strong. God's strong enough. If God's with us, we don't need to have good courage. But folks, the, the greatest courage you and I will ever need is taking God at his word and standing before the, the enemy, standing in the face of our adversaries and declaring God's word. So David was a man of courage. The next thing it says, he was a man of war. Now what does it mean when it says he was a man of war? Well, this means that David was a man of principle. He was a man of war when his principles dictated that war was necessary. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Don't ever pick a fight with a man of principle. You cannot win because a man of principle won't give up. He won't quit no matter how things look. He won't quit no matter how things are going. He won't quit no matter whether it looks like he's winning or losing. A man of principle will not give up. And that's David. David had every opportunity over the next 13 years before he's anointed to be king to get angry and get bitter with God and give up on the whole project. But he stayed faithful. He stayed faithful to God and he stayed faithful to Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill him. The next thing it says is David was prudent in matters. This word matters is the word business. It means he used wisdom when it came to business matters. It's telling us that he was responsible. He was a responsible, uh, a responsible person. Again, a responsible person is just like somebody with, that has courage. They do what is needed to be done, no matter the consequence and no matter the sacrifice. David was a responsible man, a comely person. That simply means he did everything that he was able to do to present himself before people with excellence. You know, I get a lot of comments, some from TV and some from people that come to church. It, apparently, it makes some people uncomfortable when I come to church in a suit and tie. You know, folks, it's a matter of principle for me. I've relaxed a little bit for Sunday night and Wednesday night, but it's a matter of principle for me. Because if I was going to stand before the president or some great man, I'd put on a suit and tie. Well, I come and stand before God. Why shouldn't I show God the same respect as I would for the president or some other man of influence here in this earth? Now, I don't, I'm not saying everybody else should live by my principles, but that's one of them that I have. I've tried. There has been one occasion where I didn't wear a suit on a Sunday morning, and it, it just wasn't right. It just didn't feel right. I, I had to repent all during the service to the Lord because for me it was a sign of disrespect. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to tell anybody else what their principles should be. But when you put yourself in a position where you're going to be governed by your principles, it makes all the difference in the world. There's a... Um, uh, when George W. Bush was president, the last year of his presidency, I don't remember all the details about it now, but there was some trading house or bank that was 
running into trouble and the government bailed them out. The, it was the first time that I heard the phrase used where it said somebody or some business was too big to fail. And in explaining why he did what he did, President Bush said that he abandoned his free market principles to save the free market. And I remember thinking at the time about this verse. When somebody abandons their principles for anything, that wasn't really their principles. Because a man of principle will not abandon those principles no matter what. There's nothing that becomes strong enough or a good enough reason because they've identified the principles that they're willing to stand by and live by. The last one says the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. How did somebody know that without being close to it? There had to be something about the way David carried himself. And again, all these are characteristics of excellence. He was consumed with a desire for excellence. And it brought him before the king. You know, there are a lot of times, a lot of places in the Bible where people are given opportunities to either step up or step back. People of excellence step up. I never have been able to understand. There's two things that just, just bewilder me. One is, why would people, after hearing the message of victory and success that's available to us through meditating in the Word, and I'll, I'll refer you to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, God told Joshua, this book of the law, meaning this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. He's talking about speaking the word. This is one of the things that David wrote in the Psalms over and over again. I love thy law. I meditate in thy precepts day and night. Joshua was told to meditate or speak the word of God day and night that he might observe to do him, do the word of God. Speaking the word of God, confessing the word of God builds it into your spirit. It's what creates the, uh, the right principles and the right foundation to live by. The scriptures we started off with in Matthew chapter 7, both the man that builds his house on the rock and the man that builds his house on the sand experience the same storm, same adversity, same circumstances. One falls and the other doesn't. What makes the difference? Building your house on the rock is writing the word of God in your heart by speaking it and confessing it. So here the word tells us, gives us simple and specific instruction. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do it. Do all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. Why would somebody that understands, hears just on a basic level, the reality that we have what we say and the importance of speaking the word of God to, uh, to enter into and to walk in victory, to walk in healing, to walk in health, to walk in provision and prosperity, to walk in righteousness. Why would somebody that's heard the very simple basics of that truth not put the effort into building the word of God into their heart? Why would somebody not meditate in the word when they see the results and the blessings and the benefits that it brings. I don't understand why people won't develop themselves spiritually. I don't understand why people won't speak the word of God to change defeat, areas of defeat in their lives into areas of victory. I, it bewilders me. I can't figure it out. 
I usually take the responsibility or the blame on myself and think that I must be not doing a good job, need to do a better job to make it clear to people. But I know that's not in, in its entirety. The second thing that bewilders me is how, after somebody has heard that truth, heard that message, how do they let it go or turn away from it and be satisfied with anything else? I, I just don't get that. Those are the two things that send my head reeling. I can't understand for the life of me why that would ever be the case with somebody. Doesn't make sense. Just doesn't make sense. Folks, excellence is a character trait. Excellence is something that you have to have desire for. All these things made David a man after God's own heart. It makes us a man after God's own heart too. We can and should develop all of these characteristics if we want to be who God wants us to be. Now these are things that set David apart. These are things that qualified David for the highest office in the land when he was just a teenager. These things happened before he met David and Goliath. And most everybody agrees, most Bible scholars agree that David was about 17 years old when he went out against, uh, went out against Goliath, which makes him even younger for these things. We don't know how much younger, but a little bit at least. And even as a middle teenager, maybe even before that, but even as a middle, uh, a middle teenager, 14, 15 years old perhaps, David dedicates himself to something that would better him rather than just wasting his time. Now, if you've got teenagers around the house, you know it's kind of hard to motivate them sometimes. David didn't have anybody to motivate him. He, de he developed these things on his own. It must not be something that runs in the family because his brothers in the next chapter in the uh, story of David and Goliath, his brothers make fun of him. His brothers talk about the mischief that he's trying to get into, the trouble he's trying to stir up when he hears about Goliath's bla uh, blasphemy against God. So it must not be something that Eliab developed. He must not have been somebody that spent his time doing things according to God's plan and purpose, like David did. And David just blew it off and said, isn't there a cause, isn't this a good reason to stand up and declare the goodness of God? And of course it was, and thank God he did it. But these are character traits that God's looking for in all of us. These are character traits that we should all develop. These are character traits that the Word will build into you if you meditate therein. This book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You want prosperity? Meditate in the word. You want good success? Meditate in the word. Begin speaking God's word to your own heart, to your own spirit. Hear what the word of God is saying. Roll it over in your mind. Roll it over in your heart as you confess the word of God and build the power of God into your life. That's what the word of God is. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's the word of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation. That word salvation means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to make whole. 
He says the word of God is the power of God to rescue us, to deliver us, to make us safe or keep us safe, to make us sound and to heal our bodies. The word of God is the power of God unto all those things. Well, if we're meditating in the word, if we're speaking the word of God, writing it on the tables of our hearts, which is what meditating and confessing the word does, then we're building deliverance into our lives. We're building prosperity into our lives. We're building good success and victory into our lives. We're building safety into our lives. It's an amazing thing to me how many people are just frightened out of their wits because of the things that are taking place. I'm not talking about just Christians. I'm talking about some pastors. They're all on Twitter and they're all worried about what's going to happen next. What are we going to do? How long is this going to last? Folks, there are people that are making some outrageous claims about what we need to do and what things are going to be like over the next several years. But let me give you a prediction. For the ones that are trusting in God, for the ones that have built their house upon the rock of God's word, for the ones that are speaking the truth, speaking health, speaking healing, speaking blessing and prosperity, what it's going to be like for them for the next couple of years is that God's going to take care of them. We're hearing a lot of talk about recession. We're talking, we heard some talk, some people are even saying, and it seems like some people think that they're going to get the most attention by making the most outrageous claim. If somebody can predict something worse than somebody else, they'll get all the attention. Well, there may be a recession. There may even be a depression. I don't believe there will be. But there may be any one of those things or any number of those things or any number of other things. But you don't have to participate. By the word of God, you can overcome anything and everything that comes upon the world. The world may be shaken, but we don't have to be. God said, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. These are end time things, folks. These are end time activities. Jesus is coming soon. And he picked you and me to live here, to live by his word, to act on his word, to show other people the way. I love you. I thank God for you. I pray for you every day. And I know the word that you're building your house on will stand. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you Sunday morning at 930. Good night.